What's going on? Today we have Eric Olson. Eric is currently head of radio strategy and promotion at Crush Music. In a few moments, he's going to guide us through his storybook path where he started at Electra Records, how he learned the music and radio landscape, and strategically worked his way up the ranks. This eventually led him to directly working with power players like L.A. Reid and Jay-Z at Island Def Jam, to meeting a 16-year-old Rihanna and breaking Justin Bieber's career through radio promo. Eric has had such an incredible path he is humble. He's a phenomenal storyteller. Personally, I wish this episode was twice as long as it is. I'm going to stop babbling so that we can get right into it. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, because we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Thanks so much for being a part of this. Oh, Harrison, I'm looking forward to it. It's a trip down memory lane for me. I was thinking about one of the questions you said yesterday, and that was, um, you know, what regrets do I have? And I kind of look back, I really don't have it. I mean, I've kind of had a couple, but, you know, in the end, I think they all played out the way they should have played out. I mean, I could have not taken the job at Epic Records, but... You know, I kind of had to take the job at the Epic Records. And then, you know, when I was there, I kind of could have let some people go. But at the end, I didn't want to because I liked them. And it was my choice. And maybe it was my downfall. But in the end, you know, I had to get out of that place anyway. So it didn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of come across things like that. You know, I haven't been, I don't know. I've been, I've been fortunate. I've been pretty fortunate. You ready Pleasure. to get off? You ready. Awesome. Awesome. So before we even jump into the day to day and, you know, who Eric Olson is, I, I wanted to know, you know, where are you from? Are you from Connecticut? Are you from Atlanta? I know you, you've got ties to both. I'm actually from uh, Long Island and I grew up on Long Island. I grew up in a town called Upper Brookville, Long Island and New York. And I went to Locust Valley High School. And then from there, I went to Fairfield University. Okay. In Fairfield, Connecticut. Cool. And so what did your parents do? Were they, were they, was that anything to do with entertainment? Yeah, believe it or not, my dad was in the record business. And that's really? something I, I never really, I don't really tell anybody. It's just one of those things that just, you know, until unless somebody asks, I, I tell them. But for the most part, nobody really knows that. They knew it, I want to say they probably knew it when I, a couple people might have known it in the beginning, but I never really talked about it. And because uh, he was in a different section of the record business, he was in the manufacturing side. Okay. And there was an old, there's an old saying, you know, about, about nepotism and, um, and just, you know, business in general. It's, it's, you know, everybody talks about it's who, you know, it's who, you know, it's who, you know, and it is, it is who, you know, but I had a, I took a course at Fairfield and it was called business and society. And, uh, and it's, Dr. Anderson was the teacher and the guy was just phenomenal. Every day was like the Phil Donahue show. It was awesome. And, um, he, he said, you know, he talked about, you know, business and society and, you know, nepotism is a big deal and it's definitely a part of something. But the interesting thing he goes, he goes, you know, nepotism is real. It's who, you know, but then it's what, you know, and cause if you want to go anywhere, once you get in, you got to know what you're doing. So if you kind of take that angle that, you know, you've kind of, you maybe, yes, you've had the, 
advanced step in before anybody else because you knew somebody. But now the pressure's on twice as hard to prove yourself. 100%. Did people, when you were just getting started out, did anybody know who your dad was? And No, they knew he was a friend of a friend. Right. And, um, and that was it. But he was in manufacturing, and that's what he did. He, he, he made the vinyl, and he made the cassettes, and he made the CDs for, um, it was like Mercury Records, and he did like stuff for Mercury. But I wasn't working for Mercury. I was working for Electra. And his friend was the, one of the head guys at Electra. And so your dad must have brought that up with one of his friends saying, oh, you know, like my son's applying or my, you know, my son actually works in this department at Electra. Uh, yeah, I mean, later on, you know, that came up, but for the most part, um, yeah, he used to, he used to always mention it. And then, you know, as time went on, you know, as you start to get into the promotion ranks and I would start to meet people that he actually manufactured for. Okay. So other labels like Arista records was a really big deal. He made a lot of the vinyl for Arista. As I started to get to know the Arista guys, just from promotion and you're sitting in the lobby at radio stations and so on and so forth. A couple of guys would pick up and go, Eric Olson, wait a minute, are you Don Olson's son? Those things came up later right. on. And they're Especially all, the you spelling. know, the spelling, yes, the spelling. Right? And we actually looked a lot alike. And, um, and he was a very, he was a very, very nice guy on top of it. Like, extremely nice. Totally I believe job. that for sure. You know, you're one of the nicest people that I've met in, in any job I've had. And, you know, just don't let people know that. <laughs> That's true. I, I, I did tell you yesterday when we, were, when we were on the phone that there was that one time that I've heard you really rip someone a new one. Yeah. Did you remember who it was? <laughs> the, whole, the whole office went silent. I know Bob even went silent. He's like, who's that on the phone? Is that Eric? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't even remember it, but there were, a, I, I wonder which record I was working back then. There was a couple of times at the crush office. I think I would have to go into the studio to let it out on some people, but you know, that was a good time. Okay. So back to your childhood. So you grew up in, in Long Island. You went, were you a good student in high school? It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. Um, but I was involved. You know, that was the thing. I was always involved with everything like student government wise and, and uh, basketball and tennis and, you know, anything sports related. Yeah. So, you know, that was a big part of two years, you know, of the basic upbringing is that kind of stuff. It's sports being involved in that. That helps in the long run for things, teamwork, especially. And you still play sports today or like recreationally? Yeah. Golf. That's nice. it. Yeah. <laughs> There's not much more I can do. I've been recently picking up a little bit of golf with some, with some friends and I'm not good, but you know, it's, it's hard, it, it's hard, but you know, that feeling that you get when you just like, I, I chipped in a ball from, I don't know, something like 15 yards, <laughs> you know, which was really, really, really exciting. Yeah. It's, that's, if that's fun. That's what makes you come back and driving the caddy around, you know, or in the, the cart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those little, little things that make you keep coming back and, and, you know, to be able to have a cocktail or two along the way is makes it even more fun. For sure. Okay. So you went to Fairfield university mm -hmm. and at this point, did you know what you wanted to do? Yes. I majored in communications, actually went to Fairfield with the, um, I started out as a business major in management and after a semester of accounting, I realized I couldn't do it. Uh, just accounting. I just, I got lost in the first four chapters of accounting and I was lost for the semester. It was brutal. Um, 
I switched out of the business program and went into politics. So I slipped in, I, I switched over into the liberal arts program at Fairfield, which was great. And um, so I did politics for a semester or two. And, you know, and I was like, ah, what am I going to do with this? I can't do anything with politics, to, you know, degree in politics. I'm not running for office. I'm not going to be an attorney. I'm like, I got to get out of this. So then I switched over to communications. And the great thing about communications part was I, the, a lot of the poli-sci courses transferred because what I was trying to do was use the degree not for TV, Okay, it was more about my communications degree that I was developing was more about learning how to communicate with people. Right. And that's what that was my focus. And and understanding why people watch TV and understand why people like things. So I took a bunch of sociology courses and a psychology course, but the sociology courses were the ones that really got me to understand these the, the makeup of people and the way they think and how to move the masses and what makes, you know, how to help, how to make connections in that way and, um, and building a story. And, you know, when do you get to that tipping point, that kind of that, stuff. That's very interesting. I've never heard of anybody taking that approach and taking that and bringing it into entertainment, you know? So when you were taking these courses, were there any courses that stood out to you specifically or any concepts that you learned that you think that you still apply to? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I told you that that course, the business and society course, I thought was amazing. Religion and society was also pretty fascinating. But the business and society course was great. And there was another course of like media relations or media mediums or something like that. That was also pretty cool. But the business and society course was really cool. Like, you know, learning about the Carnegie's and you know and how they operated and just you know just various like things like that and just big business and and then but you know then just trying to understand you know how different people around the country think and ironically here's the interesting thing too is you know at fairfield is a jesuit school so they really it's very much they're very into the liberal arts right so a lot of the courses you take are very are, are they really cause you to think outside the box. It's not about just getting it done. It's also about knowing why. And um, so that was, those are some interesting things I learned along the way, you know, from, from Fairfield, especially once I got out of the business programs and stuff. I was like, uh, couldn't deal with that stuff. I stuck with accounting, unfortunately. <laughs> It'll come in handy someday. Yeah. The, the interesting thing is to, you know, now I, you know, we sit, we watch the markets a lot, you know, I'm sure you watch the market. We all watch the market and trying to figure it out. A lot of what happens in the, a lot of the market type movements is very similar to the way the charts move. There's a lot of similarities. Um, and with the research that we put in and knowing all the players and how radio stations influence certain records is very similar to the way like could be certain bankers or certain companies influence the market. Right. And it's very, it, the, the similarities are pretty wild when you think about it. And the amount of time and research that we go in, that we, we do as, as uh, promotion people in dealing with playing the top 40 game or the hot AC game or the alternative game, the numbers, it's, it's very similar to the market and the moves can be similar too. And things can fall apart in two seconds too, on top of it, just like they do in the market. You know, we were talking about technology yesterday in entertainment and, you know, there could be an opportunity there for analysis, right? Mm -hmm. You know, something to, to dig a little bit deeper. I don't know, do you use any software to track, you know, any sort of similarities or is that just something that you've noticed over time? 
Yeah. You know, when I first started, we didn't really have a lot of stuff. Um, that's the other interesting thing. A lot of it was just phone calls. And, you know, when I first started, it was 1988. And I remember I walked into the office and um, they gave me a stack of note cards and it had all the retail stores in all over New York City. So it was New York, Long Island, New Jersey, Staten Island, Brooklyn, Queens, okay, all the retail record stores in the city. And there were 150 of them or whatever it was, maybe even more, maybe like 200. And it was my job to call them every week and try to influence them, those guys, to make sure that our records were in their top 20. Our songs were in their top 20. So what ended up happening, because what would take place is Z100, WPLJ, and Hot, 90, Hot 103.5 back then, which was WQHD, which was more of a dance station. Those three stations would call all the stores in the New York area and take reports. And they would fig- that's how they would figure out what records were selling in the New York area, what singles and what albums were selling. It was all done by hand, by calls. Really? Yep. Wow. So hold on, let's, let's back up for a second. So, so mm-hmm. you, were, you were studying in school and then, so your first gig, I guess, was in New York then? Outside yes, of- in New York. So was they gave me, or a, or yeah, it started as an internship, a summer internship, and they gave me the stack of cards. And they basically, so that was what I did some days. I mean, this is, my job was like whatever they told me to do, as you can imagine. I was packing envelopes. I was answering phones. I was tracking radio stations. I was tracking retail stores and I was getting coffee and getting laundry, whatever it took. And was it know, paid? Yeah, it was paid. It was, I mean, it was like $15,000 or fourteen nine, I think it was for a year, but it was only a, a summer. It's worth of work. Right. And then in September, they offered me a full-time job at 16,000 a year. Which radio station was this for? No, no, this was at Electra Records. Oh, this was at Electra. Yeah, this okay. was at Electra, right out of school, right out of school, and everybody wanted to know, you know, what kind of job it was, and and uh, I was like, I'm just trying to create something. I was just like, always like, whatever I could learn, I just wanted to learn as much as I possibly could to take it to the next level. What I put into it was what I was going to get out of it. You know, and the way I looked at it, it was like sink or swim. You know, you're swimming with a shark. You're in a tank. The sharks are in the water, and you got to get to the other side, and there's no one there to help you. I like that. And did you realize how valuable that internship was at the time? I was learning. As I was sitting there, I was learning and I was listening to everything. And I was just a sponge. I just listened to everything. Listen to the lingo. I listened to, I was listening to every conference call that took place. Um, we would have conference calls every Tuesday with the company. I sat on them. I would listen and listen to everything. And um, it was a great experience just being able to learn the lingo and then the woman I was working for is this woman named Lisa Frank, who is awesome. And uh, she's like, hey, read this magazine every week. I was like, okay, sure. It was Radio and Records. Right. And I'm like, what about Billboard? She's like, nah, ready to read, read Radio and Records. It's, that's what we do here. I was like, okay. And I had Billboard anyway. I was, and what I did with, the Billboard, with Billboard is um, I would read Billboard and I would study every radio station's chart and the people that were a part of it. By looking at the charts, I can tell what records were happening and what ones weren't. I wasn't really talking to these people, so, but I was just trying to find trends. But at the same time, I'm also reading these charts and I'm seeing who the program directors were. And the program director of WPXY was John Ivey. And his music director was Cat Collins. 
So I don't know if you know who those two guys are, but John Ivey is now the president of iHeart Programming in Los Angeles. And Kat Collins is the senior VP of programming at Town Square Media. These guys were at WPXY in Rochester, New York. Well, you probably saw their names coming up frequently on, on the charts, whatever, whatever tracks were trending, no? No, no it was just, they were just, they were programming that one particular radio station. And I remember, you know, that radio station kind of standing out and just always, people always talked about WPXY. And I'm like, PXY in Rochester, I'm so great about that. You know, but it was a good radio station. At the time, it was the number one radio station in Rochester, New York. You know, there was, there was a lot of really cool things happening at the time and you just so but I just studied the charts and I just would read both the magazines from cover to cover so I got to know who the players were just from reading so you turned this internship into a full-time paid job afterwards uh yes yep if it turned into a like I said they were paying me but it was just you know stuff to it just barely covered my expenses to get into the city right um and then in September um they offered me a full-time assistance job so I was the assistant to the New York regional at the time for Electra Records, which was Lisa. And from that, so I was doing a lot of, I was calling the stores, so I got to know the retail angle. But also, there were about 35 radio stations that Lisa gave me to call. And these stations were like smaller than small. I mean, this was like Pittstown, Pennsylvania, Willimantic, Connecticut, W-I-L-I, Willie 98, Willimantic, Connecticut. It was like um, uh, stations in New Jersey, like WNNJ in Newton, New Jersey. Um, there was a station in Beacon, New York, WBPM. You know, it was just various radio stations. So I would just start calling these guys, and I, got, I started to get to know the program director. So now I'm, I'm working the same priorities that Lisa was working, but on my little cluster of 35 radio stations. Right, so uh, I, on these smaller stations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and were they some, were they always receptive to you calling? Oh yeah, yeah. It was it, yeah. They were cool. They look they, for them. They wanted some attention too, and um, you know I would call them up and fill them in on what was happening. It was could be Tracy Chapman record. It could have been a Ten Thousand Maniacs record. It could have been a Jackson Brown record. I mean, it was whatever whatever we were working. I was working on these guys, just calling them up every week during the call times, and you know going over stuff. It was fun. And just trying to get them to play your track. Yep. Yep. How would you get them to play a song? You'd call them up and you'd have to sell them, right? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's persistence. It's problem solving. It's preparation. You know, you got to, uh, you got to have, you, you got to know what they're looking for. You have to know the radio station. You have to. Right. You're not um, going to pitch hip hop to, uh, uh, to a station that, that you just played, that just played Jackson Brown. Right. And, you know, you're working, you're, you know, when I, I'd be on the conference calls and, you know, you obviously read up on it, you start to figure out what radio stations they look at. So, you know, for example, the Willimantic station, Willimantic, Connecticut, small market outside of Hartford. So you could pitch them on what KC 101 in New Haven was doing, what TIC in Hartford was doing, what XKS in Boston was doing. If those stations were playing your record, it was a good chance they would be, they would be on it too. Right. Because there were similarities between those, yeah. records, th- th- those stations. In Harrison back then, keep in mind, a lot of the stations were independent. They were all independent. There weren't like chains of radio stations back then. It was all small mom and pop locally owned radio stations. There wasn't a situation where, you know, you walked into, you were in Hartford and there were eight radio stations in one building. That wasn't the case. It was only, only two back then. This is before, this was before deregulation. 
So how long were you an assistant for under Lisa? One year. So Lisa left in December. She got promoted and went to the main office. As I, we, I was working in the branch and a guy came in named Eddie Simpson, who was a great guy. And um, I was working for him and he, he was a lot of fun because he was just like, hey, Eric, do whatever you want to do. Take care of it. And I started calling his radio stations, which was hysterical because um, he was doing his thing. And, um, so he's like, Eric, call this guy, call that guy, call this guy. I'm like, all right, sure, no problem. So I started calling his guys on top of it. And I was like, all right, this is fun. And, um, so that was kind of neat. And I've met a couple of people, you know, over the years through that, there's a guy named Tom Cunningham, who I still talk to that Eddie worked with that, I, you know, Ed, Tom is great. So, I mean, you're talking, I've known this guy for 32 years, pretty crazy. And he's a lot of guys. Like that. He's still in radio. Uh, he's actually works for all access now. He's still in radio. He has a, um, a Bruce Springsteen show that he cover, he does uh, in New Jersey every weekend. Going back to when you were working with some of the indie radio stations, when you would try to place a track, did you have to put any money behind it? Like yeah. how it is kind of like- I couldn't do that back then. No? I mean, with the radio stations that I was talking to, no, I couldn't do that. We didn't spend any money on small market right. like that. This was just give them a box of CDs. No, yeah, you just yeah. I was just calling them, getting to know them. I'd give them a box of CDs here and there. I mean, a box of cassettes to give away. It was all about the giveaway. As soon as the record, as soon as they start playing the record, you support it because you'd send them a box of twenty-five cassettes of the new Tracy Chapman record or the Keith Sweat record or a Ten Thousand Maniacs record or a Motley Crue record, whatever it might have been, um, because you would hope that they would talk about that on the air. Hey, the 15th caller wins a new Motley Crue cassette, you know, that kind of stuff. You just want to have your name. Right. You just wanted to have something happening on the airwaves. It's the part same of way you'd give away, you know, a pair of tickets or something like that. Yeah, if we had tickets, but I never, you know, again, I didn't have any tickets for that stuff. Okay. For those small market guys. Later on, when I had the territory myself, that's when I had the tools to play with. So now you're working with Eddie. So how long were you in this role for? Six months. Wow. That was a yep. short period of time. They called me, Brad Hunt called me into his office. And keep in mind, I used to have that, as I was telling you, I was tracking, it was talking to those radio stations, right? Those 35 stations. So what I did was I created a tracking sheet, okay, for all those radio stations that I would call. So every week I would call them and track the records and, you know, this guy, this station added it, this station added it, so on and so forth. You track and the records. When you, when you say you're tracking the records, you're, tra you're tracking like the spins, how many times yep. they play. Okay. Yeah. You call the radio station and then we'll get into that too. Cause that's a whole other thing. You want to talk about technology. There was no technology. Okay. Again, it was, you call the radio station, you speak to the, you speak to the receptionist and you say, hi, this is Eric from Electra records. And I'm calling to go over some tracking for today. Um, what are your music? What are the ads today? And they would sit there and they would tell you the new ads this week are Michael Bolton, Phil Collins, and um, in excess. I'm like, okay, great. All right, that's great. Those are the ads. Thank you. And how about the moves? I could go over a couple of moves. What, what Tracy Chapman's fast car, what did it do this week? Well, Tracy Chapman's fast car went from 27 to 22. Great. Okay. How about Keith Sweat I want her? All right. Keith Sweat I want her and goes from 17 to 12. Oh, good. So you, you would be marking these down. And, and what and what would drive them to either go up or go down? Would that be people calling in to request them? Yes, it'd be requests or just the charts, basically. I mean, there was no real, for some of these guys, there was no real research. And this was not based on spins. There was no media base back then. Right. This was all, you know, nonsensical charts that these guys made that they thought was the answer yeah, on how the record they, was moving up the chart. Right. It was kind of like how they would make a playlist, right? Yep. Yeah, it wasn't based. I mean, it was based on plays, but the chart was kind of, eh, 
Yeah. They're like, oh, there's more people tuning in because we played more Tracy Chapman, so we're going to play a They couldn't more. tell. They right. couldn't tell. So I would chart, So I would walk over, and I had to pick up my check every week, right? So I'd have to walk over to the main office at Electra, and I knew I would see them. I'd always make it like a cameo on Friday at like 3 o'clock, kind of walk in. I knew people would be walking around and give me some FaceTime. I would walk in with my tracking sheet. Hey, here's my tracking sheet. Picking up my check. Thank you very much. Catch up. Good to see you guys. Hope all's well. That record's happening, isn't it? Boom, and walk out. But I was always like, hey, how you guys doing? Great to see you. Boom. And then I remember, I guess it was in May or June. It was like the first weekend. It was May. It was in the middle of May. Brad called me in his office. He sees me. He goes, Eric, come in here. I go, okay. How you doing, Brad? What's going on? He goes, what do you think about Miami? I go, oh, Miami. Sure. Well, what do you got? He goes, well, I'm going to make you the Miami person. You want to move to Miami? What do you think? I'm like, uh, cool. All right. Uh, what about, he goes, what about Philadelphia? I go, no, 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 I like Miami better. <laughs> I was, I was 22. So I was like, sure. Miami sounds good. Um, how much I got to make? He goes, how much you think you should make? And I go, I should make $30,000. Whoa, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and I go, Brad, I'm like, seriously, come on. I, and he couldn't believe it. He's like, oh. he's like, he says to me, he goes, why 30,000? I go, because everybody from New York lives in Miami. And it's like, my, it's New York prices down there. And he goes, nah, 28.6. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my starting salary in 1989 in Miami Beach, Florida. And I went down to Miami and I was the, uh, I was the local person and I covered the whole state of Florida. So you, I was 22. So, wow. Yeah. That's a huge promotion. It was, it was great. Was yeah. the office big out there or was it just? Nah, it, was a, it, was a, it was an office. Um, we had like a little sales office there that was actually bigger than you would think because so much of the international stuff went out of Miami. Yeah. The Spanish stuff he was really coming in at the time. So that's why we had a little bit of a, we were a little bit bigger than some, but it was a sales office and uh, it was awesome. It was great. It really was. It was a great little place to be. I had a great place. I lived on the beach, um, fully furnished place. It was, you know, awesome. And my territory was the whole state of Florida. So on the weekends, um, on the weekends I'd get in my car, put my golf clubs in the car and go Tallahassee, judge a bikini contest. I mean, like, it was like, okay, I'm at Florida state and I'm judging a bikini contest. This is crazy. It was awesome. And, um, if I wasn't doing that, I'd be in Sarasota golfing with my buddies or, you know, doing something like that. These, I, my programmers became part of my social life right. because I had nothing else to do. What was I doing? And they were your friends. They were your contacts. They had to become my friends. I was paid to be their friends, you know, and right. But they became real friends, all of them. And it was, it was fun. I mean, a couple of guys, not so much, but you know, for the most part, the younger guys it became very close with. Cool. And did you have an a assistant couple of at this point? I, no, no, no assistant. Did everything myself. Everything myself. You, know, you just, you just did it. It was awesome. You just got in the car and you went and, and I would compete against the Warner Brothers guy, the Atlantic guy, the Reprise guy. Those guys were in our office. The Geffen guy was in our office. And then you know, you'd go to the radio stations, you'd sit at Y100 on Wednesdays and do, and you'd wait with all the other reps in town. There was a Sony guy, there was an Epic person, everybody had somebody. And you went and you pitched your records to the music directors, Power 96 and Y100 and WSHE and, you know, you did your thing. How do you make one track stand out more than the next guy? That's, that's part of it. 
um, you know, first you hope the record can stand out on its own. And then if you have the ammunition to walk in and talk and tell a good story about how the record's reacting in certain markets, you know, it goes a long way. A lot of it's really storytelling and the record. This was back then. This was back then. So the metrics like today in today's day, it's more about the metrics back then. It was a lot of gut. It was a lot of gut and a good national staff to back you up and just hustle. Hustle. I mean, I, so one of the first records I worked down there, I had a 10,000 maniacs record. That was pretty good. Um, I can't remember. It was second album. I think that was pretty good. I had a simply red record that was breaking out of there. Uh, actually there was a track of the simply red record, which was the Harold Melvin song. Um, if you don't know me by now, which was a huge record. That was a number one record for simply red at pop. So we had that. And then we got a Linda Ronstadt record. And it was a Linda Ronstadt record with Aaron Neville uh, from Cry Like the Rainstorm, How Like the Wind. And the song was called Don't Know Much. And um, I remember walking in to a bunch of the radio stations and just going, this is going to be a big record. And, you know, you're either in or you're out, but this is going to be a big record. Right. And uh, we, we were competing against the Sinead O'Connor track that week. I think. Um, and so they couldn't play these tracks without your, without your permission. No, the, the only way they got them is if we gave it to them too. You had to give it to right. them. You had to walk, you had to mail them the CD. That was the other thing we had to do every week. You were doing mailings every single week, mailing your records out. Like now that we have technology, it's a big difference. You were mailing, I mean, Harrison, not just mailing the CD, you're putting two pieces of cardboard into a sleeve and then you're taking the CD and put it in so the CD doesn't get crushed. Right. Okay. I mean, that's how crazy it was. Those are the things you did. And you put little notes in there. Hey, check out my, you know, my Linda Ronstadt record. Right. Cause you'd call them first or, or, you, you know, you, you want to, you want to try and pitch it over the phone or you, Oh, did you get my CD? I sent it a couple days ago. And, and Harrison, there were, uh, you walk into the radio station, there's stacks, stacks of music at every radio station, 30 CDs deep. And they were getting these every week. How do they have time to listen to everything? They didn't. They didn't. That's the whole thing. That's why it was so important to get your first big week. You have your first big week under your belt and then the rest of the guys would just come in because they had such big weeks, you know, but that's, that's where we came in. We did a lot of the bulk work. We were like the army right. and you just get out there and you get in the car and you go see 10 radio stations in three days, setting these records up, whining and dining and, you know, taking guys out, showing up with birthday cakes for guys and whatever it took. You know, but they were all good guys. I mean, everything was good. Everything was on the up and up. I never, and by the way, no drugs, man. No, not here. That was not me. That was not my thing. You never struck me as the guy who takes drugs. No, nope, 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 nope. It was, it was just a good thing. I just always kept it clean. Some of the things that I'm finding, like, obviously I never ask, oh, you know, did you, did you party a lot? Did you do drugs? Like, I haven't really asked that in any of the interviews, but somebody else also mentioned, they're like, you know, I, I was just too busy. Yeah, I always wanted to get up in the morning. Yeah. I didn't have time. It's not still to this day. I mean, I had a couple, you know, always a couple of nights where you had a good time drinking with somebody and stuff like that. But, you know, after the first or second or third time you do it, you're like, and you, you're just ineffective on a Thursday or a Friday. You're like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. Some people can do it. Some people can't. I wasn't one of them. And so were these jobs more or less like around the clock? Like, were you working 40 hours a week or were you working more like 60, 80? 60. Yeah. 70. I mean, you worked all, you work seven days a week. Yeah. Always. You're always working. 
always worked. And this is the cell phones were just starting to come into play then too. So I actually just want to backtrack for a moment. You know, you, you said you'd go into the main office, you know, every, every second Friday to hand in your, well, you kind of show everybody your sheet. Yeah. Hey guys, what's up? I'm here dropping off the sheet this week. You know, did you have any, any interests at the time that you were able to chat with people about, you know, because like, you know, maybe, maybe you weren't able to just talk about music, but maybe there were people that you were able to talk to about sports or about. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, Everybody was cool. It was a good group of people that worked up there in the New York office. Brad was great. He was a big Buffalo Bills fan. Um, and, uh, you know, Lisa was up there and there was this guy, Steve Schnorr, Schnorr, who worked at EA Sports now. He was great. And Suzanne Berg, who ran the AC department back then. And she works in Nashville now. And she was just always, you know, very nice. Um, but it was just a good bunch of people. It was just so, yeah, there was always, you know, good conversations. The reason I asked that because, you know, most, so I, I had an internship first, it was in the UK, which is mm-hmm. actually where I got started. And then. You know, I had a couple internships in Montreal and then eventually I, by fluke, I got crush. Right. Mm -hmm. And when I was there, I, you know, my brother's a big sports fan and, you know, he follows everything and, you know, I picked up tidbits from him, Mm -hmm. but I, I I didn't really watch sports much at the time. And I remember like, you know, you're a big sports fan. Bob was a big sports fan. Even like Eli, you know, Mm -hmm. you talk sports. I'd I'd listen to that and I'd hear it all the time. And I was like, you know, if I knew more about sports, I would have more to talk about. Maybe, maybe it seems as something silly for, for you to be like, oh, you know, like I didn't really realize that I had that. But like, you know, it's just there's hobbies that you can try to find common ground with people mm-hmm. that are completely unrelated to music. Because, like, you know, you don't just only want to talk music all day, every day. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because if that's what you would start out with programmers. And when you're starting, when you talk to programmers... So on these note cards I used to have, right? I used to have the address. I used to have the program director and I'd have their phone number on there. And then underneath, I would write down his hobbies. What did we talk about? We talked about, um, it could be anything. We went tubing in the lake, um, trips to New Hampshire, uh, likes to go to Kitty Hawk, you know, whatever it was, whatever little thing they liked. So just so you knew, you know, and then you would also like, Birthday is five twenty eight. Uh, anniversary is six twenty six. Um, is twenty seven years old or whatever it was. And right. you would just you know. So those are the little things that you would just you always keep notes with the note card of like what his little what made him tick. Right. And and then there was this old there was um, another promo adage we used to talk about is like what makes the watch tick. That's what we used to say, like, what makes the watch tick? What makes him tick? That kind of stuff. So you'd always, you know, when, as you moved up the ladder, you know, your, pro, your bosses would call you up and go, what's that guy in West Palm Beach? What makes him tick? Figure out what makes the watch tick. Okay. <laughs> was that Brad or was that just the same voice? Nah, it was just anybody, <laughs> anybody in general. So. No, you know, it, it's, it's really funny that you're saying all these things. Like during this quarantine, I've been living with my girlfriend and she and I were just talking about, you know, giving each other, like what gifts we gave each other and, you know, cards that we had bought or made for each other. And, you know, like little, you know, little cutesy things that we'd write in a card. And last Valentine's Day um, last year, she, she knows that I'm, I'm really into cartoons and like, I really like SpongeBob. 
you know, I've always mm-hmm. really liked like the Nickelodeon cartoons and that they really just stood out to me. And, you know, I've spent many years as like a counselor and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I know all the references. And so she had made a SpongeBob SquarePants card like by hand, you know, she made this whole thing. And, and like, I remember like getting that and I was like, wow, this is really cool. She took the time to make something for me like that. And like, that's in a sense, it's kind of what you, what you have to do to really set yourself apart. Anyways, it just made me kind of think of that. All that stuff, yeah. You were always, uh, you always wanted to shine in some other way over somebody else, and you know, and that's the thing. It's you know, with a lot of these program directors, they're almost like they're almost like girlfriends. I mean, you you're you're out there trying to get the date with them every week, if you will. Yeah, well, it's it's a relationships business. You know? Yes, that's the whole thing, and you want to keep it real. You want to have a real relationship, so right. you can have a conversation other than music all the time, like we were, we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And that's the, what it came down to. And a lot of things become about life. And it, you end up, you know, you hear a lot of it. You hear a lot of things and don't necessarily want to hear sometimes. From well, I pay a lot more attention to sports after that crush internship because I was like, you know what? I probably could have, I, I think I think I did a good job, but I think I could have shown a little, I, I could have shined a little bit brighter and yeah. you know, stood out a little bit more. There's always more that you could do. Yeah, there's always more, but you did fine. Yeah. I was the guy who used to stack the, the toilet paper rolls. <laughs> Did a really good job. Yeah. I'm sure they don't do that anymore. Nope. We miss it. Yeah. Come back, Harrison. Uh, I remember you saw me doing that and you said, I have a glow-in-the-dark toilet seat that's been sitting in my office that needs to I'm be... right. You did put that in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was our first conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine put that... had uh, my friend Dave Reynolds who, after he left epic he started making glow-in-the-dark toilet seats all he ever wanted to do was get his item in sky mall yeah i don't know if you remember sky mall it was a magazine that used to be in the planes yeah yeah called sky mall and when sky mall went out of business okay jimmy kimmel did a whole piece on sky malls going out of business can you believe it you can no longer get these fine items and it was like boom the glow-in-the-dark <laughs> toilet seat <laughs> and that was <laughs> the jimmy Reynolds. kimmel show yeah, that no, was Dave Reynolds. Yeah, yeah, and he it's just like that week he like he like it exploded for him. The glow in the dark t- toilet seat. He got an order for like a hundred <laughs> toilet seats. Yeah, it was yeah. great. Anyways, back to what we were talking yep. about. Uh, let's shift gears for a moment. So sure. you, you're in Miami. Mm-hmm. I know that you went to Atlanta. Did you move to Atlanta for Def Jam or or what happened there? No. So um, I did. I did pretty well. I had a really good run in Miami. So we broke a bunch of records down there. And uh, it was a faster pussycat record that broke out of there. That was a lot of fun for Electra. And um, so I had, a, I had a good run, both pop and rock wise. And um, uh, there were some opportunities that had come up for me to move up in the company. And I, one of the places I wanted to go was Atlanta. I wanted to get the Atlanta job. And I was, they were also to move me to Atlanta in June of 1990. And um, the last minute, our guy who was living in Houston at the time wanted to move to Atlanta. So they said, all right, Eric knows New York. They were letting Eddie go in New York. They were letting Eddie Simpson go. He was, wasn't working out. Yeah. So they were like, they wanted me to replace Eddie. Right. At the last you already, minute. You had a lot of contacts. You already knew. Yeah. New they, York. they knew I knew the New York office and the New York branch. And so right. they offered, they brought me to New York and, um, and brought Jeff to it, to Atlanta. I wasn't happy about it. I wasn't ready to go back to New York. Um, so I went back to New York and, uh, I did it for a little while. I kind of hated it. Was it at least and, for a promotion or it was, yeah, it was, no, it was, I was now the New York 
person. It's a high, more of a high profile job than the Florida job. If you look at it on paper, but it really isn't because when you're in Florida, you're the, you're the guy, you're the big fish in the small pond. You got it. Right. And when you're in New York, you're a small, you're a small fish in a big pond. Right. And, and there's plenty of big fish to take care of your work. So you're not the main guy at Z100. You're not the main person at KTU. You're not the main person at PLJ. There's all the national people. That's what they do. You're really almost like a delivery boy. And it sucked. But again, I was working with great people, so I didn't, it didn't really bother me that much. But in the process, I wanted to get to Atlanta. I went to Atlanta a couple times when, while I was in Florida, and I loved it. Absolutely fell in love with the city. And um, I mean, who knew, you know, 1991, 1990, knew, you know, Atlanta was such a special place. And I went there, I want to say six months later, um, an opportunity came up for me to move to Atlanta with another company. And um, they offered me a lot of money. I went back to Brad again and said, Brad, they've offered me a lot of money. I want to go to Atlanta. He goes, all right, I'm going to put you in Atlanta. You'll go down there as a regional person. You'll be these guys' bosses. And anyway, he moved me down there in February of 91. And I was in Atlanta. And it was cool. And Atlanta was great. So I was in Atlanta from 1991 to 1998. So I was there when the boom, the real boom happened in Atlanta. Like the, I mean, Atlanta exploded in that time. Then we had the Olympics in 96. You know, the art scene exploded. The music scene, both on the rock and the hip hop side, exploded. Atlanta was just happening. And Brad was always like, why do you want to move to Atlanta? And the reason was the best promotion people came out of Atlanta. That was my opinion. And uh, he goes, well, who are they? And I would name off a bunch of guys like Charlie Miner and this guy, John, and this guy, Jim Davenport. Just a whole bunch of promotion people came out of Atlanta because there were so many radio stations that broke records in the South. And that's where you broke the records was in the South. And I wanted to go break records in the South. Why do you think that was? <clears throat> in Atlanta, um, back then, there were so many good secondary markets in Atlanta, you got to know a lot of people. And because a lot of programmers came through the South and from the South went elsewhere. So guys would work in Birmingham and then go to Atlanta or they'd go to Charlotte or they'd go from Birmingham, they'd go to Chicago or Columbus or Minneapolis. Um, it was a big stepping stone market for programmers. Right. And if you really did well in Atlanta, you know, for over a couple of years, you could really do well in the rest of your career. And being in the scene and, you know, just being basically the neighbor in, in Miami, you saw all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And then while I was in Atlanta, I oversaw the Florida market. I oversaw the Carolinas and I oversaw parts of Texas. I was also the regional local person in Atlanta. And then eventually I had a person working for me in Atlanta as well. So I was able to get my hands in a lot of different things. So you were back to being the big fish, but now you're in Atlanta. Yeah, but I wouldn't, I would never say I was a big fish, like, but I was, it was good to be a part of, you know, that scene. Um, yeah. And, but to be more in control of their destination, they, the, the guys in the New York office counted on you to get things done in the South because you could do it. You're there. Right. When you're, when you're in New York, you, you're not the guy because they can do it. They don't need anybody. You know, nobody wants to fly down and go to Montgomery, Alabama. I want, I have no problem going to Montgomery, Alabama. It's a two hour drive, like two and a half hours from Atlanta. No problem. Nobody wants to go to Columbus, Georgia. I can go down to Columbus, Georgia in an hour and a half. You know, nobody wants to go to Macon. I can get to Macon in an hour and a half, like whatever it took. You did it. That's why, that's why it was great. But the Atlanta scene was, was it, there was a scene. There was a major music scene happening. It was coming out of Atlanta. It was coming out of Birmingham. 
and it was coming out of Charleston, South Carolina. Those were the rec. That's where the music was coming from. Hootie and the Blowfish was coming out of um, Charleston. Coming out of Charleston. Yeah. yeah, Charleston and Columbia. Crack Beer Review was '94, I think. '94. Yeah, '94, '95. There was that scene happening coming out of Charleston. Tracy Chapman broke again out of Charleston in 1995 with uh, Give Me One Reason. There was a resurgence on that. And also keep in mind, at the time when I got down there, we were working Metallica, the Black Album in 1991. That was breaking through. We were working, um, Natalie Merchant was going solo by 94, and she had Because the Night. And we picked up Fish, I want to say in 1993, the Nectar Album came out. And I remember Fish was breaking big too. And I got a call and they was like, Eric, we just signed Fish. You need to go check them out. I'm like, all right, it's Sunday night or Saturday night. I'm like watching the game. Like, can I just like, you know, like, no, you got to go check this band out. They're at the Variety Playhouse. I'm like, Jesus, I have no idea what I'm walking into. I mean, there's no internet. You can't look, look up Fish, yeah. you know, in 1993. So uh, I go to the Variety Playhouse. I'm like, ah, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. And I hadn't been, I've never been in the Variety Playhouse. It's in, it was in the uh, Highlands of uh, Virginia, known as Virginia Highlands in Atlanta. Cool, trendy area, kind of a hippie area. And um, so I walked into the club and dude, holy shit, what the fuck is going on in this place? <laughs> it was like, holy shit. I, first you opened up the door and the smoke came out. Whoa. Right. I'm like, this is, this is the Grateful Dead. Because I had just seen the dead in Madison Square Garden like in 1990. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is a younger version. And then they hit the stage and I'm like, what is going on? And everybody starts dancing and twirling and the patchouli's out and that, you know, everybody stinks. And, but that they were just so happy. Everybody was so happy to be a part and you of this. had no idea who they were. Nobody did. No idea what was going <laughs> on. It was the most energy I had ever seen in a room. Salt, it was jammed. I mean, you couldn't move. Anyway, the show gets cut short and it's a legendary show. And I don't know if you're aware of this. So they talk about it all the time. So it's a legendary show. Place is nuts. Something happens where the water from up top, because the Variety Playhouse was like an old movie theater. And um, the water from up top, from like uh, the faucets or something, starts running down the aisle <laughs> and going to the front of the stage. Oh the water cuts. So, and fish takes a break. And during the intermission, the water's flowing down and probably you know six inches of water on the floor maybe maybe a foot on the floor in front of the stage because you know it goes down at an angle and goes up and the wires are there so if they were to plug in their instruments somebody's going to get electrocuted right so they shut it down and the guys come out and they're like getting ready to play and everybody's like hey why aren't you guys playing your instruments like guys we can't we have there's no microphone there's nothing right and they just come out the four of them come out and go we can't play. There's an, there's an electrical problem. There's a flood. We've got a problem. We promise we'll come back. Everybody's going to get refunded their tickets, so on and so forth. But we're going to play for you. And we're like, what are you going to play? And they came out and did an acoustic set. Wow. And Fishman, the drummer, came out with a washboard and started playing a washboard. And it was, it was incredible. And when I tell you they did, um, they did Boston's... Um, was it four play long, long play? They did that with the washboard. It was incredible. That is so Acoustic. cool. Yeah. I mean, that just told me how great the musicians these guys were. Right. And um, it was great. And, that, and it was pretty cool. That was, so that happened. 
So those were just like some of the records that were starting to happen. And, and then the, the alternative music scene started to take off in Atlanta. And um, 99X became a, a big driver of alternative music. And at the same time, on the urban side, hip hop was booming. But you would never know it because pop radio really didn't play hip hop in Atlanta. And, uh, but they played all the alternative stuff. Yeah, because I think when a lot of people think of Atlanta, they think of hip hop. Yeah, but back then, it was it was alternative, and that's what it was. It was ninety nine X was the contemporary hit radio station for Atlanta back then, and Star ninety four came out of there too, which was also a pretty cool station. Uh, but like Leslie Fram and Brian Phillips, those people are you know two of the brighter people that I've ever been around. Leslie now runs CMT. Okay, and uh, she's awesome. And Brian Phillips runs Cumulus. He's the head of Cumulus Media, uh, programming in, in Cumulus. And he ran CMT for a long time, brought Leslie in, and, and Leslie is now who runs CMT. And they were running 99X back then. And isn't like Ryan Seacrest even from Atlanta? Yes. Seacrest actually was working for a guy named Tony Novia at Star 94. And Tony is, you know, salt of the earth, one of the greatest guys I've ever met, uh, nicest guys, good friend. Um, and Tony found him and he was the van driver for him. He was the van driver and uh, fill-in jock for at Star 94. He actually, from he's from Marietta. This wow. was all happening back then too. So you were right in the thick of it. Yeah, it was and, great. Then why did you leave? Well, uh, 1998 came and, um, you know, I had, uh, I had my son. And it was time to get closer to mom and dad and my in-laws. And so it was time to get back up to New York. You know, I had done my run. So I came up to run the pop department for Electra in 98. And we had a couple good records. We had, um, we had Third Eye Blind, which we were breaking. And Missy Elliott was starting to break. And um, so I kind of ran top 40 department. And a couple of other people that were there that were great to work with. And, um, and then in 2000, I left Electra and wanted to, I wanted to get out and do, um, just, just needed to, I mean, I wanted to grow. I wasn't growing. Cut your legs a little bit, change. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to change the pace. And Electra was good, it was a record company. Yeah. You know? And uh, it was time to grow, move up. And Ken Lane, who was running, uh, who was running promotion at Island Def Jam, was rebuilding the whole team, because Island and Def Jam merged. And Lior Cohen was looking to start with a whole new promotion team. And, um, so I went over there, Ken, I said, Ken was like, what do you want? I, said, oh, I want to be a VP. I want to run, I want to do national pop promotion. He's like, okay. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And he goes, okay. And he brought me in. So Mike Easterlin and I, who's now the president of Electra Records, and I ran promotion. And Ken was our boss and uh, we worked, it was Ken. And then Mike and I did the promotion stuff. And um, we, at the company also, so Lior was our head, was the head guy. Mike also, Mike was also uh, fueled by ramen, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But that's all part of Electra. Now, okay. Mike was general manager for fueled by ramen and, um, and Roadrunner. Right. And they changed the name. They just merged everything to put it all in the Electra hat. Now the three main players at, at Island Def Jam were Lior Cohen, YouTube, Kevin Lyles, who runs 300 Entertainment, and Julie Greenwald, who's the president of Atlantic. So it was great. It was great. We had a really good time there. And Ken was great because Ken just let me do my thing. He's like, do it, whatever you want. Go for it. And I was like, okay. You had free you reign. You were a VP at this point. How old mm -hmm. were you? Uh, I was 2000. I was 34. 
34. Yeah. The other interesting thing was when I was in Atlanta in 1991, the SBK local guy, regional guy was Monty Lippman. Monty Lippman is the president of Republic. You know, and I, and the great thing for me was I came from Electra to Def Jam. So I had the experience of working with rock acts, obviously with Electra. And I also had the experience of working with hip hop acts because I was working with Busta Rhymes. I was working with, well, not, I wasn't working closely, but I was working Busta Rhymes records. I was working ODB records. I was working Missy Elliott records. So I kind of got how they worked through the system. Right. So I was able to go to elect go when I went to Def Jam, I kind of had the experience of watching these records grow from the rhythm, the urban rhythm format into the pop format. Right. And when we got to Def Jam, we were saddled with the job of crossing urban records, hip hop records to pop. That was the whole thing. When you say pop, I'm thinking just like mainstream all over the radio. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Z100 type. And at the time, there was not a lot of records I came across. Not a lot of hip hop. And we just did it. It was just like, wow. Right time, right place. You know, Jay-Z records, one after the other, and Ja Rule records. And, uh, it was like one after the other. It was so many. It was fun. It was so much fun. What was it like? So Jay-Z was president at that time, or? Jay-Z didn't become president until after Lior left and L.A. Reid came in. Okay. L.A. Reid came in as the, as the chairman of Island Def Jam, and um, Jay became the president of Def Jam after Kevin Lyles had left. He was the next president. So that, what was that like? You were having a creative, you're having an artist as now, president of the company. It was awesome. So, you know, the first artist he signed, right? He signed three artists. There's three artists that he started with. Neo was one. Uh, I think her name was Tierra Marie. It was two. And there was this little, there was this girl from Barbados named Rihanna. And those are the, she was really the first one. She was really the first one. And that's why you yeah. have a photo with a 16 year old Riri. Yes, it's correct. Yeah. That is correct. Yep. Right the first right record. And the song was called Ponder Replay. And um, it was awesome. It was awesome. But he, the thing about Jay was this is a guy that could see the matrix. And you'd sit in a meeting and you'd watch all these people go back and forth for two hours about different ideas, this, this, and that. And he would just go, no, this is what you're going to do. Boom, 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 boom. Everybody would go, Yeah. Totally. And I was just like, all right. Yeah, cool. He just saw it. He got it. He yeah. knew what was up. Just sees through the noise. Yeah, he did. Totally. He was amazing. That's really cool. You know, you've had exposure that, you know, people would, people would kill to be a fly on the wall in that room. Yeah. And there definitely were times where there is some video that's out floating around. So I was in a cab in London two months ago, a month and a half ago. And he, this guy, this cabbie or Uber driver says to me, he goes, yeah, I've seen Dame Dash videos. And I saw the video when he walked into the room at Def Jam and, you know, caused a whole ruckus in the meeting. I went, yep, I was in that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were there for, for how long? Almost 10 years, no? 11. 11 and a half. 11. Yep. From 2000 to 2011. Yep. And, and so. then at that point you wanted to change. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of had to make a change when there was going to be some changes that at Def Jam and LA was leaving. So um, I just looked at it as an opportunity to jump in with him at, um, at Epic. And he wanted me to go with him. And I was like, okay, sure. I'll go with you, man. That sounds great. And gave me, you know, a substantial raise. I was like, all right, sure, let's do it. I went over there and uh, it just wasn't ready. 
it just wasn't ready. <laughs> but he it stayed was, there a while. Yes, yes. He did. Things got better after I left. He did two, <laughs> he did, um, he did two tours of X Factor. So that was 15 months of X Factor. Okay, that was the 15 months that I was doing promotion. I was running the promotion team, and he was on X Factor for two months. So we didn't really have any good records for those was 15 this, months. Was this when he found Bieber? No, no, no. Bieber was at Def Jam. Okay. Yeah, that was Usher gave that to him. Right. And, and Bieber was 13 years old at the time. And we were kind of like, eh. And then Scooter started popping in. Scooter came to the office. We would watch it and we'd all of a sudden you'd be like watching YouTube and you'd go, wait a minute, something's going on here. This is, wait a minute, these numbers are astronomical. And he was the 30th most watched artist on YouTube. Right. When we were, we, before we even got going to radio, he was massive. That's when we realized like something's up and the company didn't get it. Nobody got it. Nobody got it. And that drove Scooter crazy. And Scooter would come into my office now, here's the true story about the whole thing. Scooter would come into my, now Scooter from up here. He lives by me. He grew up here in Greenwich. He went to the same high school as my kids. Okay. And uh, Scooter was great. He was always on top of it. And um, so Scooter comes into my office one day and he goes, this company doesn't get it. This company doesn't get it. You guys are going to screw this thing up. And I'm like, hold on. Stop. Take a step back. All right. Forget this. Forget what they want to do because it, it's not the right thing. What we're going to do is go hand-to-hand combat. Okay. He actually stole the line from me. He stole the line and used it in the movie. Okay. But I said, Scooter, we're going to go hand to hand combat one radio station at a time. And we're going to videotape everything this kid does. And we're going to hand the videotape over to the radio station after we're done. And you're going to tweet about it. You're going to post it on Facebook and you're going to blast it out around the world. And everybody's going to come to these radio stations and they're going to see what this kid can do. And so basically the first thing we did, we went to Philadelphia and I gave everybody on the, on, on the team a flip camera. Remember those flip cameras? Yeah. Okay. So I gave everybody a flip camera. We went to Philadelphia and we were doing an interview and a performance because uh, the, uh, the initiative at iHeart and all the radio stations was to build up their web presence, not Facebook presence. Nobody, was in, nobody got the Facebook thing yet. Nobody got the Twitter thing yet. This was like, I don't, know, I don't even know, 2008. So they didn't know anything about Twitter, but the listeners knew about Twitter. The kids did. And the kids knew about Facebook. The kids knew about YouTube, but the programmers were like not down with it yet. So Justin goes in and does his acoustic set, right? And we videotape it and they videotape it, but we video, we're videotaping it. And then we give it to the radio station. We would go in So Dave Reynolds, who was again, Dave Reynolds, the toilet seat guy. (laughs) He would go and he'd set up three different cameras right? He'd set up three, he'd bring in a tripod, he'd set the camera here, he'd set the camera there, and three different angles. And Justin would go in and do, we'd have him do a song, we'd have him do Baby Baby, and a cover. Yeah. And we'd do a different cover everywhere we went, okay, just to mix it up. So the kids all around the world would follow. They would watch it, because he would do Baby Baby everywhere, but they also wanted to see what the cover was that day. So he does it in Philly, and then we take the video, send it to Scooter, send it to the radio station. Scooter post a link on YouTube, okay? And Scooter would then blast it out on Facebook and blast it out on Twitter yeah. on, the Justin, on the Justin Bieber page. Every Justin, single stop. Every single stop. But we'd start with Philly. Right. So the most viewed videos, okay, at WIOQ in Philly, it was, were like, it was like 350 views, okay? That was the most. Yeah. We hit that by the weekend. We were at 1,000. Okay, none of this is big, but this back then, that was a lot. 
Right. By the end of the month, it was a hundred thousand. At each at each stop. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because also would, the kids that you were having come out, they well, were the probably kid, they were probably sending these out to their Well, that's what was happening was they wasn't so Scooter would take it and blast put it on Facebook. So whoever was following Justin Bieber in Israel, Germany, Canada, Texas, wherever it may be, they were watching this video in Philadelphia. Right. So one week later, the program director calls me up and she says, she's like, Eric, um, I got to talk to you. I go, okay, what's up? And she says, um, you know, iHeart just, I just hung up the phone with iHeart and they want to know what you guys did or what Joey Brooks did with our um, Justin Bieber video that we posted. I'm like, okay, sure. What's up? She goes, we were the number two most viewed website in the company yesterday. Uh, really? Okay. She goes, well, they want to know if, you know, there were naked photos or something. I'm like, no, it was, you know, what did you do? Like, we didn't do anything. We just posted it on the Facebook page and off it went. She goes, this is amazing. I go, yeah, it's amazing. Just play the record. <laughs> <laughs> From there, Harrison, we, we saw how it worked. So the next place was Poughkeepsie. The next place was Albany. The next place was Ro Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, Chicago. And all those, and all those markets were used in the movie. Because that's what happened. And you just saw it. Explode. Lightning in a bottle. Yes. Yes. And the same thing happened in every market that we went to. And it got crazier and crazier and crazier and crazier. And I would show these videos in the marketing meetings. And that's when everybody would go, holy shit, we need a bigger boat. And, um, and the thing that was got, when, it, when I realized it was getting crazy was the first one we did. So Philadelphia was the first one like we, we did, you know, where we, we knew we had a story. But the first one was Atlanta. It was a Q100 in Atlanta. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but we sent Justin in with Usher. And the only way we got him on the morning show was because Usher was going and brought him with him. Okay. Cause the program director and the, and the consultant were like, you're not putting Justin Bieber on. But then we were sending Usher in and Usher brought Justin with him. Right. Which we knew was going to happen. So we tweet. Okay. Again, tweet radio stations had no idea what Twitter was. We tweet, Justin's going to be at Q100 in Atlanta at 8.30 Wednesday morning. Show up. There's 100 kids in the parking lot. Okay, these guys don't even know who Justin Bieber is. They, the radio station doesn't even know who Justin Bieber is, but there's 100 kids with Justin Bieber t-shirts on that they made themselves. I love Justin Bieber t-shirts. All there. Diehard fans. Yeah. Diehards. Okay? And they all go up into the lobby and wait there in the lobby for Justin. He comes out and starts playing and they all have their flip cameras and they're okay. And they're singing every word to the song that the programmer doesn't even know. And that's when it, that's when everybody was like, okay, I get it. Yeah. It's time. But they, everybody fought it. They fought it all the way through. And, but we just had to keep going and going and going and it eventually broke through. And the other funny thing was about the whole thing was the metrics on the airplay didn't match what was happening. Okay, so they didn't put enough records in the store when, they, when the album came out because the audience didn't match because it was all about the metrics. You, you buy the amount of records by, based on the radio audience. Right. The radio audience was small because it was all night play 
an overnight play. People were, you know, I played the record once and that's it. And so they didn't put enough records in the Target stores and so on and so forth. It was pretty, it was crazy. We sold out. These kids were hearing about Justin Bieber through YouTube. Yes. Yep. And, and probably like whoever they were just, they, you know, they were just sharing it on, on whatever social platforms or just sharing with yep. their friends. And it was all metrics that these radio stations didn't have at the time. Right. So that was the whole Justin Bieber thing. And then, you know, of course, later on, you know, the, the riots at Roosevelt field and, you know, which was a lot of fun, which again, you know, practically orchestrated the whole thing. And, and you lived all of this, not mm-hmm. only lived it, yeah. You, yeah, you orchestrated it. Well, I can't say I orchestrated no, it, but, but we saw it coming. We, we yeah. knew, and and nobody wanted to believe team. us. You're yeah, part of the team that brought this all yeah. to fruition. Yeah, and and nobody wanted to believe us, which was the fun part. We would, we would warn them over and over again, dude. I'm telling you, it'll be ten thousand people there. No, yes, no. What was and it then, like watching all this unfold? It was awesome. It was awesome. That whole that Roosevelt Field thing was incredible. That was awesome, and it just got you know it just got crazier. And, and then I, I remember calling the radio state. I called 92.3 to tell them what was happening. I go, dude, I called up TikTok was on, or TikTok his name was. I called him up. I hit him on the hotline. I was like, yo, dude, you watching the news right now? And he turned on the news and he was like, that's Justin Bieber at Roosevelt Field. He's like, holy shit. I go, yeah. He like broke into the song and goes, guess what's going on down at Roosevelt Field? Hey, if you want to go see Justin Bieber. And he was like fueling the fire. More people were going. They couldn't get people away. It was crazy. It was like, it was a, it was a total riot. It was great. <laughs> Man, you're a great yeah. storyteller. I feel like, I feel like I'm like, I'm reliving it with you. That was a good one. That was good. During the Justin Bieber thing, the Mariah Carey thing was taken off. We, you know, put her back on the map, um, which was huge. Huge, 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 huge. She was great. She was an absolute doll to work with too. She was wonderful. Um, so appreciative in the end of the whole, when, after she was, got a couple of Grammys off of um, uh, Emancipation of Mimi, that album. Mm-hmm. The song We Belong Together was massive, massive number one record. So um, I remember that being all over radio. Yeah, that was a good run. And then Nickelback, was a great run, you know, how you remind me and to all the other big records that Nickelback had, um, say what you want about that band, but they were, I mean, they just made it, they made great, I'm great a radio records. Yeah. Well, you're, you're Canadian. So, yeah. you know, I remember that was, that was silver side up. Yep. So, uh, we had all that stuff and then Bon Jovi was earlier at Island Def Jam. We had the whole thing with it's my life, Yeah. which was, I, that was a full year of work on that. Nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody. Why not? He was considered an '80s hairband. Yeah, and um, okay, I, I it see was that. really tough. And but we we were persistent, and we he made a song called "It's My Life," which was like a Max Martin record. And uh, we just were really smart in everything we did. We just tried to make the the videos really sexy, and everything about it was you know we try to really make it look good and not like 1980. And um, you know it worked. It was great. The Bon Jovi thing took a long time, but it was just about getting people to the shows. And, you know, we put people on stage night after night. And John worked his ass off. He was, uh, he was a beast when it came to working, you know, that album. He, he did everything. He was, he was, him and Richie were great. So that was a lot of fun. And then, uh, you know, I got to Epic in um, uh, 2011. I was over at Epic. And I was there for 15 months. And it sucked. <laughs> what did you so, hate the most 
Uh, no, it was just tough. The music was tough. That's really what it was. It was just, we didn't have, we had a really good artist. We had one good record. Uh, we don't know. I shouldn't say we had one good record. We had a couple of good records. We had, uh, Carmen was, was good. Um, we had a Cher Lloyd record that was really good. Um, and we had a script record that was really good. And other than that, we had a mediocre Frey record. I love those guys. They were great. And, um, but other than that, we really didn't have any good records. And then the day I, after I left, um, they brought in Fifth Harmony. Uh, and yeah. So, you yeah, know. From X Factor. Yeah. 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 And so I did some indie work from 2013, 2014. I was doing some indie work. Running my own shop and just, um, you know, quarterbacking projects and picked up an Andy Grammer track called Honey, I'm Good along the way, which went great. And then, um, you know, from that record, the funny story was I went out to see the manager. Ben, I get in the car with him and we were driving around and we're going to get lunch. And he goes, hey, can I play a record? And I'm going, ah, sure, sure, play me a record. He goes, I, gotta, I need you to hear this record. And I'm like, all right, sure, whatever. And he plays it for me. And about 60 seconds in, I turned it off. And I went, dude, I can get that played. And it was, um, it was Fight Song. It was, oh, um, what's her name? Uh, Fight song. Rachel Platten. Rachel Platten. That's it. It was Rachel Platten. Great. It was a great song. So I, I said, I can get that played. And he gave it to me and I took it to Radio Disney and Phil at Radio Disney loved it. He's like, oh my God, I totally get it. And then, um, and a guy on the East Coast got it played down in Baltimore and it shazammed like crazy. And, and you know, Columbia swooped in and took it, picked it up. So I kind of worked it. It was fun. And then I picked up, um, I started quarterbacking a, um, a Fetty Wap records, a couple of Fetty Wap records, which are huge. And uh, so I did the crossover on that and a pop. So and this, then, is when you, this is when you were at, at Epic, right? But you were, you were doing some independent work on the side? No, I left Epic. Okay, so you left Epic. Yeah. What, what were you doing was, at this point? I was doing independent work. I was quarterbacking. Okay. I had my own company, um, okay. Radio Promo 101 was my company. And I think I, did I tell you the story how I had this like whole philosophy of like, um, I, I looked at a blank piece of paper the day I got let go and I was, I came home that night and I went like, didn't, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I'm like looking at the, like this blank piece of paper staring back at me and I'm like, what the fuck? This is saying something. I got to do something about it. And I was like, Oh my God, I have a chance to paint my own picture and do what I always wanted to do yeah. and create my own streams of revenue. And that was what I was telling you, uh, where I wanted to get away from just having one stream of revenue. I wanted to have multiple streams of revenue. And that's what I carved out. It was, you know, about, you know, working projects, consulting projects, and then managing artists. And it was short-term, mid-term, and long-term. And the band I ended up managing was a band called The Alternate Roots. And um, they had a song called Nothing More. And uh, at the time I was running around with Mike Posner doing some quarterbacking for him and he had a great record and he, awesome guy. Funny thing about Mike Posner, he, tell you a funny, quick study, funny story about Posner. We're running all over Michigan, Michigan and Illinois and, and Wisconsin going from radio station to radio station. And Mike's incredible. I mean, he's, he's written some amazing records, you know, Justin boy, Justin Bieber's boyfriend. He wrote, um, he wrote an Emily uh, Sunday song with uh, Labyrinth called Beneath You Beautiful. He wrote that. And he's got this, this album that he's playing me. And he's like, what do you think of this song? And I'm like, wow, that sounds like a smash. And he goes, yeah, me too. I think it's a smash. He goes, I think I'm going to sell it. And I go, okay, what do you, who are you selling it to? And he goes, I'm, eh, I'm going to sell it to Adam Levine. 
I'm like, okay. It was sugar. Really? Yeah. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It was sugar. I was like, holy cow. And, then, you know, and Adam had called him while we were in the car driving around. He's like, hey. And he goes, I think he's going to take it. I go, really? <laughs> I said, I'd take it. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. So, yeah, we knew, he knew right then and there. It was a great record. Anyway, um, we were in Chicago and in Michigan in January. It never got above zero. The entire time I was running around with him, I mean, the highest it was was, minus, was four degrees, actually, the day I was driving to the airport to go home. So for like five days, it was minus two, minus seven. It was unbelievable. And the Winter Olympics are about to start in 2014. And I get a call from the alternate routes. Uh, I, they, they call me up and they go, NBC just called. And I went, really? He goes, yeah, they want to use the song in the Olympics. I go, get out. And he goes, yeah, they, they won't tell us where they're going to use it, but they're going to use it. I'm like, All right, sure. How'd they find out about it? And he goes, they heard it, but they heard it on the radio. And I go, really? And because we had put it on, um, the record was great. I gave it to Jim Ryan, who programs Sirius XM, The Pulse. And I gave him the record and he, I called him up. I said, dude, it's going to be on NCIS tonight, the season finale, right? Yeah. He goes, he gives me one of these. He goes, that's my favorite show. I go, well, I hope you're watching it. <laughs> and he goes, I'm DVRing. I'll be right home. And he, he watched it. He was blown away by it. They used it in the finale of the song. They used it at the end of the show in the season finale. And he hits me up afterwards. He goes, I'm putting it in. It starts Christmas Eve. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, great. So he starts playing the shit out of it on uh, Christmas Eve. And then obviously the folks at NBC must have heard it and ran with it. And, and so then I call up... Um, Posner, I go, dude, they're putting my song in. This is going to be great. The guys did its record that I, I'm working with and they're putting this in. He's like, that's great. Send me the video. And there it was. They used it in the opening ceremony, like the montage, the recap of the opening ceremony. With the, with the torch, right? Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. It, was, it was amazing. It was the one in uh, Sochi in Russia. Wow. It was, it was absolutely incredible. It was really, really great. That record ended up... Um, we did a lot with that band and as much as I possibly could, we never got, we never really got it over the hump, but um, the song still lives on and still gets usage all the time. Um, it's an amazing song. And, you know, I still get calls. And actually the, the guys got a call recently about it. Um, there's a, supposedly we're waiting on a car manufacturer to use it. So, so we'll see where that goes. And then, um, and then I went to crush after yeah. that. And uh, the thing at crush was great because in 20, I want to say 2014, well, what, well, hold on. Like, what brought you to Crush? Did they, did they say, you know, Eric Olson, we want to bring you in? Or So there was a band called Fall Out Boy, which we didn't touch on that I worked at, at Island Def Jam. Did you know this story? No. Okay. So Bob. But I do know Fall Out Boy. Okay. So Bob managed Fall Out Boy. And Fall Out Boy was when I was running promotion at Island. Was, was Bob day-to-day on Fall Out Boy? Bob was, oh yeah, Bob was his band. That was straight up his band. And, uh, and then he started to work with, you know, then he and JD and then they started to get build it out and get Dustin involved and so on and so forth. So, um, I got to know Bob and JD. Well, I got to know JD through the cure in the nineties when I worked with them. And I was another one of those bands from Atlanta that, that blew up in Atlanta too, by the way, the cure. So I got to know JD through the cure. And then I got to know JD a little bit more with American hi-fi, which was a band I worked with. Uh, also at Island. Did he manage them? Yeah. Ah, JD did. I didn't know JD that. did. Yeah. And, um, and then 
Bob brought Fallout Boy, and I got to know. And so Fallout Boy was starting to break at at Island Def Jam, and we were breaking it through. And I went to a show at Irving Plaza, and it was a Tuesday night, and the records came out on Tuesdays. Remember, the records used to come out every Tuesday. They yeah. come out on Fridays. And the album came out on that Tuesday and I'm at this fallout boy show and I'm like, this room is packed. It's like loaded with kids that are like 14 and 15 years old when 12, 13, 14 year olds are losing their minds to this, to this band on stage. And I'm like, okay. And all the parents are in the back, which was really funny. I think, you know, that was a great thing about fallout boy. They could sell, you know, 600 tickets, but 400 were For parents, kids, and the other 200 were parents in the back. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. So and uh, up a bar tab. There was no there was no line at the bar. Okay, it was no line. <laughs> the parents were sitting there, like looking at their watch, like when are we going? And I mean, they were drinking the beer, but that was it. Right. Anyway, these kids knew every word of the songs. Every single word. I'm like, how the hell do they know these songs? This song, the album just came out today. As it turned out, it was MySpace. It was the dawning of MySpace. So the song comes out, and I'm watching the show, and I'm watching all these kids. I'm like, what the heck is going on? This is not alternative. This is pop. This is a pop thing. Yeah. And, but yet the songs were alternative, but the audience was pop. And I was like, what is going on? But get the kids or skateboard kids. So there was a little bit of alternative thing going on there too. Anyway, I'm watching it grow and grow and grow. And I called up Bob and I went, Bob, I think Fall Out Boy, we should take it to pop. And he goes, get the fuck out of here. And I go, no, 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 it is. I think I can do this. And he goes, all right, give it a shot. And we did it. And we just kept going and going and going. And then, and then we had dance dance on top of it. It was like, how can you miss? That was a top right. 10 record. And Sugar was, uh, Sugar didn't make it top 10, but it was well on its way. So we had that comp going on. So that's how I got to know Bob. And from that point on, Bob and I were always tight. I mean, we always were friendly, very close, yeah. good friends. And um, he called me in like 2014. So it was after a year and I was out from 2013, 2014. Um, so 2014, he calls me up and he goes, uh, what are you doing? And I said, you know, doing some projects, running some records, you know, doing quarterback. And he goes, everyone work for Crush? I went, sure. He's like, what's your number? I gave him my number. And he goes, ooh, that's a little high. And I go, well, that's what I'm doing. And so I was. I was like, I'm doing that on my own. I'm good. And like, meaning I'm, I'm like satisfied. And uh, so um, he goes, well, all right, well, good talking to you. You know, we can catch up again. A year later, he calls me in again. Hey, you want to come by? I'm like, yeah, sure, come by. That number's still the same? And I went, yep. He goes, okay, when can you start? I'm like, really? I go, yeah, all right, sure, May 1st? Because yeah, May 1st. It was like a week later. Yeah. And um, the first record they gave me was Max, the first artist. We want you to break Max. We want you to do what you did with Bieber with Max. And I'm like looking at it, I'm going, okay. And they're, they're playing me all the other tracks. I'm like, okay, all right, yeah, it's okay. Max was also already a little known because he was on, he was, Disney, he was a YouTube. He was on Disney Channel. Yeah, he was, a YouTube, he was big time Nickelodeon and YouTube. Yeah. 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 It was mostly YouTube. He had uh, Rags. Yeah, yeah. Was his movie that he had. But most of his stuff was YouTube. And um, and he he was also doing a movie. He'd just done a movie with um, Paul Giamatti, the Brian Wilson story. Uh, Love and Mercy was called. And it was all, he was in that. He played Van Dyke Parks, who was the writer, one of the big writers for the for the Beach Boys. And Max was in the movie and he, par he nailed it. And um, so 
Max and I embarked on our three-year run of trying to break Max, and um, and that's where I started. And then along the way, we broke a sea of record cheap thrills, which nobody wanted to play, which was funny and crazy at the same time, and ended up being the number two <laughs> most played record of the year. You know, it's crazy to hear it now, right? Yeah. And we had um, we were working Fall Out Boy Uma Thurman when I got there. That was the first, one of the first records I got, and we and we put Max out on tour um, with Fall Out Boy and Wiz Khalifa, and we did our promo tour. We went. We did hand-to-hand combat, just like we did with, with Bieber for a year. We went everywhere. And um, we just, it was about trying to get people to know him. And once we got the right song, Gibberish wasn't the right song, and we knew it. And uh, we started to know it pretty quickly. It was a good song. But Max was also a big-time YouTube artist. He wasn't really a artist. Puppeteer did pretty well on YouTube, didn't it? Yes. But, and that was not a bad song. But he was a YouTube artist. And that yeah. was the tricky thing about Max. The YouTube audience and the radio audience are two separate things. YouTube kids don't listen to radio. And radio kids, they sample YouTube, but they're not seeking it. They're not seeking out unknown people. And um, Max had a whole YouTube thing going. And um, it was totally different. I mean, we would actually, when Lights Down Low was on Z100, it was a hit. We would walk through the airports and people would recognize Max. And I remember walking through LaGuardia Airport and a girl goes, you're Max. And, and he's like, yeah, how you doing? And she goes, your version of Titanium on YouTube is amazing. And I'm like, have you heard Lights Down Low? She looked at me. She's like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, holy cow. She was totally into him for YouTube. That was it. Lights Down Low, that was the song of his that I heard when I was an internet crush. And I was like, this is going to be his song. Yeah, it took two years. Yeah. But as soon as I heard it, like, I didn't even have to hear the entire song. I was like, this is his song. Yep. You want to know the funny story about that one? Yeah. March 2016, he plays me that record. But he plays another record beforehand, before that one. And I go, Bob, he's got a record. Let's go hear it. You know, get Bob into the studio. He plays this song called She's a Razor's Edge or something. The track was great. Okay, this, the lyrics are terrible. And um, I go, Bob, he's got a new record. Let's go check him out. Let's go see what he says. You know, he's been working hard. Let's go talk to him. We sit with him. And, you know, 60 seconds or 90 seconds into the song, Bob gets up and walks out. You know, that's not a hit. He just leaves. Max looks at me like, what was that? I'm like, dude, that song's not a hit. And, uh, and Amir was with him, who was his producer. And I was like, yeah. Max, that record's not a hit. And he's like, well, why not? I go, well, the track is good, but the, lyric, the lyrics suck. And um, I'm like, dude, who, what girl do you know wants to be called She's a Razor's Edge? I mean, what are you thinking? And the two of them look at me like, uh, yeah, they were like, the track is great. I'm like, yeah, the track is great. The beat was great. I mean, it really was. I go, dude, let's rewind this for a second. You're driving in your car and you pull up to a traffic light and there's a car on your left and a car on your right. There's a dude on your left and there's a girl on your right. And they're both listening to the same song. What's the dude doing? And Amir and Max look at me and go, banging the steering wheel, playing the air drums. I go, yes. What's the girl doing? And the two of them look at me and go, ah, singing the lyrics. I go, yes, we want her. (laughs) And Max looks at me and he goes, I wrote that song. I go, really? He goes, yeah, I'm saving it. I'm going to sing it to Emily at my my engagement. I go, okay. He goes, it's called Lights Down Low. I go, really? And he's like, let me hear it. And he plays it for me and he goes, dude, that's your hit. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. And that was in 2016. And then we yeah. put it up on um, 
on Spotify and it started to pop. And um, did you know this story? I was there until June. In 2016? Okay. So, so I was there it, for this. Max was always in the office. Yes. So he was doing a lot of the recording. And then uh, so we got it on Spotify. And there was a girl in Holland that put it on one of the Spotify playlists. And the thing just went, it didn't, it just went like this. It just raised its hand. Just yeah. a slight bit. Like, I'm, I'm here. And it didn't, like, it wasn't a rocket ship. It was just like, hey, um, check me out. I'm, I'm, I'm performing. Yeah. And it was the algorithm picked up on it, the fact that people were saving it. So, they bumped it up and bumped it up and bumped it up. And it was like, it picked up and picked up and picked up. And then it went to Belgium and then it went to England and then it kind of bounced around and then it came here. And now it's August of, I want to say it's June or July of 2016. And I get a call from Mike McCoy at NCI in Columbus and he's breaks records. He's, he's great. And uh, he says, Hey, uh, I'm putting a show together back to school show. And my daughter loves Max. Can you get me Max to come in and do the show? And I went, yeah, sure. No problem. We'll be there. It's in August. So we fly in and we do, we do the show. And, and, um, and this is also where I told Max, as a, this day I told Max, hey, dude, unless you're doing a half a million streams, we ain't going to radio. He's like, why is that? And well, there's an artist on this show that's not doing a half a million streams. And that record's over on Monday. And, uh, you know, he's number 27 on the chart. And I can tell you right now, that record's going to be over on Monday. Unless you're doing a half a million, you're not going to radio. So you got a few more week, months to go before we go. And so he got it. So he knew he got to keep on building it. And it started to build. And then we got a call in, uh, and we started, we saw the record, it, the record Shazam off the airplay, right off the bat in Columbus. We saw Shazam's all over the city. But then we got a call from KDDB in Honolulu in October. And actually the guy added the record. And uh, I called him. I'd never spoken to him before. And I called him up and I go, Kelsey. Eric Olson, bop, 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 said, you know, you added Max, Lights Down Low. Any reason why? Like, why'd you add this record? Like, I don't, tell me. Because I wanted to hear him. Like, I wanted to make sure it wasn't a favor. Okay? So he goes, do you add this record? And he goes, yeah. Because I like it. Really? <laughs> and he goes, yep. Because those records do really well here. I go, no shit, really? Okay, good. All right. I remember this now. And I remember these ballads always did really well in Hawaii. Really well. So he, he, this guy's in Honolulu. So now it's like November and the record Shazamming top 10 in Honolulu. Right. Okay. I'm like, wow. Now it's like Thanksgiving, December 1st. The record is like December 3rd, boom, number one in Honolulu. Shazam. The only guy in the, sta in the, in the island playing it. The other two stations jump in. They start playing it. Max goes, I'm going to Hawaii for Christmas. I'm going to vacation there. I call up the guy. I call up Kelsey and go, he, Max is coming over. He's going to hang out with you guys for two weeks. Give me some things to do. He lines up a TV station. He lines up parachuting, parasailing, swimming with sharks, the whole thing. They became great friends. Do a mall appearance, all this stuff. So I'm calling the radio stations around in December, and I'm going, hey, this Max record is blowing up in Hawaii. Like, you guys need to be a part of this, right? I'm calling, like, Des Moines, and I'm calling Chicago, and I'm calling Detroit, and they're like, Eric. Are you fucking nuts? Hawaii? What are you thinking? I'm in Des Moines, man. I got no time for your call. What do you think this is? I go, but it's real. It's, I'm telling you here. Look at this. It's number one. And then I'm calling Virginia and they're like, no. And, and then I'm calling Atlanta and the guys in Atlanta is like, dude, I got a Christmas show. I can't talk to you right now. I'm like, okay. It was like one after the other after the other. January comes. Now the red, we're getting the red team engaged in the record, red, red music. And they tell me, like, yeah, Eric, we're going to work the record. We're going to go for ads on you know, the end of January. I'm like, okay, great, great, great. 
And uh, we get we get there, and um, I'm like, so we're number one priority, right? Like, no, you're number six. What do you mean number six priority? Like, what are you guys doing? So I end up fighting with them for like a couple of weeks. We first week we go out of the box. We get like seven stations. It was like just wreck nothing so nothing really was happening again a couple more stations the following week a couple more stations and you know it's now february 28th and i'm talking to dan on the phone and i'm like dan i don't know if i'm gonna make it for the week right and i i don't know what's gonna happen and it's i want to say it's interesting harrison it must have been like 10 30 in the morning right it was 10 30 in the morning and I'm telling Dan, I'm like, Dan, I don't know if I'm going to make it through the week with this record. I think it may be over. And as he goes, well, yeah, I, I understand. I get it. It's okay. No problem. You Good run. You know, good start. All of a sudden, just all these emails start coming in. True story. All these emails start coming in. They're all first alerts. Okay. There's 15 of them from all over the country. Right. And I, and it's, it's like Springfield, Missouri. It's like Bakersfield. It's like Portland, Oregon. It's... I don't know, Albuquerque and Austin and a couple of weird markets. And the last one, and then Tucson, and then the last one is Phoenix. It's KZZP in Phoenix. I went, holy shit, John Jay and Rich, that guy just played the record. John Jay and, so it's John Jay and Rich, the morning show. Right. John Jay and Rich. John Jay just played the record. Um, wow. So I hit my buddy, Matt Mitchell, who programs a radio station, go, Matt. But you what set did, that up with John Jay and Rich? No, yeah. no. This, I, this was totally random. Just like Hawaii. Just like Hawaii. Totally random. And I, I, I text Matt right away. I go, Matt, what did John Jay do with the, with the Max record today? Hour goes by, hits me back. He sends me this, this file that was enormous. It's a 15-minute dissertation on how great the record is. Not only that, he played it twice. Okay, he loved the record so much and went on and on and on about the record and talked about it and how great the song was and what it meant to him. And uh, like, how did you even know about the song? You can't even buy so, that. <laughs> right, you couldn't do, I, it, was, it was incredible. So this is how you move the needle. So this guy, he's number one morning show in Phoenix and he's syndicated. So, I mean, it, he's got, he's a play. It, the show is great. It's a really good show. So all this is happening and I'm shocked. So I call him up. I go, John Jay, Eric Olson. We've had my artists do interviews with you before in the past. I go up, catch, catch up. And go, What's going on here? <laughs> and so, but I listened to, I listened to the show because I went to the iHeart Summit, which is where I gave a presentation on the song. And I heard the song, but I didn't remember hearing the song. I came into my son's room the other day and he was playing video games and this song was on. And he said to me, he goes, I really like this song, Dad. And John Gay goes, I like this song too. I've heard it before. I just don't know where I heard it. And he started running it through his mind. And he goes, I heard it at the summit. He didn't hear it once. He heard it like twice, two or three times. We played it because I played it. I heart played it. And then Red played it. Danny Bush had played it. Now he's like, oh, if my son's listening to it. It's yes. Yeah, he got it. And, um, and then Which is what you were trying to get across to all these guys in the first place. Yes. And then the lyrics connected with him and he got it and he loved it. Now, the interesting thing about what happened was when SoundScan came out, okay, the, the SoundScan came out on the record. Cause you know, we're, you know, obviously we're dealing with a lot of streams now, but also SoundScan was still a player back then. The record went from a really fascinating thing. It went from like, I want to say it went from 25 copies to 125 copies. 
in Phoenix on one spin, on two spins. Wow. In Tucson, it went from six copies to 66 copies. And then in all the other markets, it was up either 100% or 50%, whatever it was. It was a substantial amount. So at that point, I knew the morning shows were moving the needle. So then I started lining up the other morning shows. Syndicator did Elvis Duran. And when we did Elvis Duran, every Elvis Duran market, the record was up at least 50%. Then we did JV in the morning in San Francisco. The record was up 60% off of the one play. One play moved the record up 60% for the entire week. Were they playing the entire record or were they just playing the track? Playing the entire record and doing an interview. Those records in power rotation, they weren't selling like that. So it was the one play and the interview that moved it. And then we did Kid Craddock. And off the Kid Craddock play, which was interesting too, the Kid Craddock play was up 25% nationally in SoundScan for the one day. Wow. That's how much it was up. Yeah, it was, it was substantial. So we saw these things. But this, again, this is like April of 2017. Still very, very early stages of the record. And um, we get through the summer and it was just, it was a fight every single bit of the way. And then, you know, stations like Kiss in Los Angeles didn't come in until the 51st week of the record. I think I impacted the record on January 24th of 2016. Kiss in LA and Kiss in Dallas had the record on January 17th of 2017. It was one year later when they put the rec finally put the record in, and uh, so long. There were so many records that came out. There were three Justin Bieber tracks that came out. Fifth Harmony started as Fifth Harmony. By the end of it, there were Fourth Harmony and Camila Cabello had even put three records out. Right. Um, Ed Sheeran put out a big record. So you're competing with all the other pop artists. Yeah, every single week. And they were putting three records out, three different records. The uh, One Direction guys broke up and all released singles. That's why if Max was half Canadian, he would have he would have blown up faster. Yes, he would have. But I had to call up my buddy up in Canada and get him cracking too, because he finally it took him a while. I remember when on. when I heard "Lights Down Low" on the radio for the first time. Like I was waiting for it because yeah. I, I knew it was gonna it, I knew it was gonna hit, and uh, and I I called Ian, I called Planet, and I was yep. like, uh, Max is on the radio right now, and I sent him a picture of it. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. So anyway, what else can I add for this, Harrison? Give you. Ton of content. I hope it helped. Oh, it was amazing. A lot of content. Great stuff. So uh, I actually have two questions to wrap it up. Sure. The first thing is, have you had any interns or assistants that have stood out to you in the past? And what qualities do they possess? Give you an idea some of my assistants. I think the um, a lot of them have done very well for themselves. So Nikki Farag was my assistant and she is now the executive VP of promotion at Def Jam. Um, she was extremely organized and extremely smart and just knew how to get shit done. I mean, that was great. She just had my back. That's the thing too. It's like the thing when you, when you are doing what I do, you just need to be able to do your stuff and not worry about what falls through the cracks. And you have to have people that are behind you just picking up after you. And she picked up for after me and kept things running and kept everything away from me. And she was really protected. She ran, she was like, blocker okay like your blind side in football yeah he's your left tackle and when my back was turned she had my back and and i had a couple of assistants like that jen mulvahill who's canadian by the way you you put me in touch with her uh, a while ago she works at caa she was also very smart organized and terrific again had my back um adrian asip adrian is i she's a vp now over at epic and she was worked with me at Electra and I brought her over to Epic and she was another one just like on top of it. Terrific. 
And Lori Giamella was also one of my assistants in, um, and Lori is now VP or senior VP of promotion at RCA. She does rhythm promotion. She was amazing on top of it. I mean, she's just on top of everything. She was just really had my back and knew how to step up. And uh, Darren Hagen was also a really good, um, Darren Hagen works with Red Light now in management. He was also extremely organized and uh, really had his act together. And then interns, ah, this guy Harrison, he was pretty organized. He was terrific. He's just really hungry. Um, the, <laughs> Thanks, so Of course, <laughs> of course. Um, but they were all just hungry and organized. And I think that was really the key is just being organized. And there's something, Harrison, I always tell him, I told them all pretty much like, look, you got two ears and one mouth, right? There's a reason for it. Yeah. Listen, listen, just listen. Just listen to everything. That's, that's all you have to do. Just listen. Sit back and listen. Now I have so much more of an understanding of what you do. Yeah, it's tracking down the radio guys and getting the pieces to fall into place and um, getting records. Their birthdays, their anniversaries. Well, there's that too, but it's just getting the record to get the familiarity. And yeah. that's, that's the key. If you can get the familiarity, familiarity's king, and the record will come home. If you don't get the familiarity and the record doesn't become familiar, you're not going to get it. Let's say, you know, you, you had an artist, or, or, or let's say there's, there's some artists that are listening right now who aren't signed to anything. They don't have a team behind them. What can they do to get radio TikTok. play? TikTok? TikTok, Instagram, social media, play as many shows as you possibly can do. Um, I would try to do everything but the radio part of it. Merch, develop something that's real, something emotionally that people want to be a part of. And um, that's what people want. They want to be a part of something. Right. They want to be part of a movement. And that's what you have to create. You have to create that movement. And if you can create that movement with a real, authentic fan base and you're authentic, it'll last a long time authenticity is everything everything the fake stuff doesn't last right the real stuff lasts forever and that's why you know fallout boys last so long that's why panic has lost lasted so long that's why weezer has lasted so long that's why green day has lasted so long um that's why sia keeps doing what she does they're they're authentic everything they do is authentic it's real real music real stories real songs um and that's what separates you know the mediocre from the best and then the real fan base that, you know, where the kids gives them something to root for, something to be a part of. They want to be, a, every kid wants to be a part of something. You know, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, there's a line in, there's a line in Bohemian Rhapsody. And it's where John Reed asks Queen that John Reed, why should John Reed sign this rock and roll band? What makes them different from all the other wannabe rock and roll bands? And Freddie says to him, because we're a band of misfits, four guys that don't know, don't know why we're together, but we're together. And we play for the misfits every night. And when they come to see us, we're all misfits together. And that's what makes it great. It's a magic moment. It's a magic moment. And that's, and that, you know, when you see that at the Panic at the Disco shows, you see it at the Green Day shows, you see it at the Fall Out Boy shows, you see it at the Weezer shows, you see it at all these big shows. And it could be a, a death metal band, it could be, you know, but it's a commonality that where all these different people come to be a part of something together. And that's what makes it special. 
everyone feels like they're alone, but they're really all together. Yeah. And they're, that's all, it. they're all, they're all alone together. Yep. That's exactly it. Eric, thank you so much. Oh thank man. You. My pleasure. All right, Harrison. Thank you so much, bud. Have a great Good night. night. Hey, what's going on? Harry here. Just wanted to take a moment to shout everyone out who's been tuning into this podcast week after week especially those who have taken 30 or 60 seconds out of their day to write me on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and also those who have left kind reviews on Apple Podcasts to share their love and express how each episode has positively affected their path in entertainment. This is the whole purpose of this podcast. I thank you so, so, so very much. That's the kind of support that keeps this podcast going. If there is somebody that you know that would make a phenomenal guest, they've got an inspirational story that would really resonate with a lot of people, please do reach out on any of our platforms and I will get in touch with you. Thanks again, everyone. Much love and stay safe.